mysteries, and myths attached to Egypt have kept us transfixed for well over a hundred years. Stories of mummies and curses, of treasures that abound. What is our fascination with Egypt, with the people of that land, its history and mysteries? Tonight, we're going to delve into a very interesting aspect as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the finding of King Tut's tomb. Tonight, Killer King, Tut's Revenge. Our special guest, Mark Anthony, and that's here next on the best in paranormal podcasting. This is the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. I'm not going to stand here and listen to this baloney. He won't know. He doesn't stand for baloney. Evening, my little darklings, and welcome back to the best in paranormal podcasting. This is the Paranormal 60. I'm your host, Dave Schrader. I had a remarkable chance in the mid to late 1970s to witness something that captured the attention of the world. It was the King Tut exhibit at the Field Museum in Chicago. They talked about the popularity of this, but I couldn't believe the lines. These are actual photographs from 1977 as this opened up. Lines stretched for blocks and miles wherever King Tut's exhibit was shown. It was everywhere. It was in the news. It was splashed on our TV. And even Steve Martin was into King Tut and came up with a very popular song at that time, uh, a comedic song. Cashing in on the wonder and fantasy and interest in the boy king. Now, we sit here on the 100th anniversary, and I know that sounds strange. It almost feels like this should have taken place hundreds of thousands of years ago because of how big King Tut is. But only 100 years ago did they find the tomb of King Tut. Tonight, we've got a great guest lined up for you. Joining me is Mark Anthony. He uh, is a psychic explorer. He is also known as the Psychic Lawyer. He is a longtime guest of my programs, has always been with us. He's a fourth-generation psychic medium who communicates with spirits. He's an Oxford-educated attorney licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. Mark travels to mystical locations in remote corners of the world to examine ancient mysteries and supernatural phenomena. His latest book, The Afterlife Frequency, The Scientific Proof of Spiritual Contact and How That Awareness Will Change Your Life is available. We're going to have a link for that on today's program guide. And I know that once you hear Mark here tonight, if this is your first time, you're going to want more. He is also one of the hosts of The Psychic and The Doc. And uh, I will have a link up to their podcast so that you can keep up with them and check it out. Whenever I want to talk to somebody about a topic, and I know they're going to dive deep. I always call on Mark Anthony. However, this time he was well ahead of me. He'd already been diving deep and he's here to share with us some interesting information and history regarding King Tut and the curse that surrounds him. Mark Anthony, welcome to the Paranormal 60. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be back. And uh, this is such a great topic. I've really been looking forward to talking about this with you. Did you did you stand in line when 1977 rolled around and they rolled out this extravagant museum exhibition that was traveling the world? I, I didn't see it back then, but I've seen uh, two other Tutankhamun exhibits, one in Denver and another one in Miami. And I was actually, and a very good friend of mine is a museum curator of, of the uh, New Orleans Museum of Art, and he actually handled the gold death mask. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, so. what? what's so endearing about this is the popularity, the interest of people worldwide. But even in 1977, 
I remember friends' moms not wanting us to go on the field trip to the Field Museum in Chicago because of the legend of the curse of King Tut's tomb and all who entered the tomb or laid eyes upon its treasures. That's how powerful this was. Even in 1977, there were people trembling and fascinated and seriously concerned for their own well-being in the situation. Very weird. Um, oh, why do you think it is that people are so fascinated with this element of our history? Well, there's Tutankhamun's discovery is everything that intrigues the psyche, the history, the mystery, buried treasure, um, years of searching for a mysterious pharaoh, a lost tomb, and then when it's discovered, a curse. I mean, this, Dave, this has everything that the Paranormal 60 is all about. And this is the type of thing that has intrigued people for thousands of years. I mean, there's always the allure of treasure, but, but there's much more to it than that. There's also the knowledge. And the thing is, and we're going to get into this, not only did the discovery of the tomb answer and address a lot of questions, but it opened the door to even more profound questions and even deeper mysteries and some with a very sinister edge to them. You know, again, as I bring up the fact that, Oh, that was weird. Did you hear that? Very strange audio artifact just came across. I know for you skeptics out there, you're like, Dave, that happens. You're right. But it always happens when we talk about really, really weird things, but I guess that's every show. Um, the concept of curses, the concept that this is taking place. I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but the concept of cursed mummies predates the finding of King Tut's tomb by over a hundred years. It wasn't first associated with King Tut. This is something as part of legend and lore. Was that, do you believe, a belief in the religion and the, the systems of the Egyptians? Or was it a fable just to try to keep people from grave robbing and and disturbing these intricate sites? It appears to be all the above. If we go okay. back in time to ancient Egypt, Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, was considered God on earth, a living God. And that's why they were enshrined in these vast uh, tombs. And for the benefit of the listeners, I want to give a bit of a historical context a lot of people, when you think of ancient Egypt, you certainly think of pyramids. Right. Um, but as much time passed between the construction of the Great Pyramid at Giza and the burial of Tutankhamun, not in a pyramid, but in the Valley of the Kings, you know, quite, quite a, a distance away from the pyramids, almost as much time passed between the construction of the pyramid and the burial of Tutankhamun, Dave, as passed between the birth of Jesus and the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and then... So is there a tie then between King Tut and the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids? None whatsoever. Um, <laughs> the, the pyramids were built um, roughly 4,500 to 5,000 years ago. The Sphinx could be much older than that. And I know a number of the scientists who've been working on and studying the Sphinx, and based on the water erosion marks around it, it appears that the erosion marks were not caused by sandstorms, but by tropical rains. And certainly the Giza Plateau is in what we now call the Sahara Desert. But at one time, and the, the geologic evidence, the actual science proves that the, the climate there roughly 9,000 years ago was tropical. Mm -hmm. And so there is great, great belief that the Sphinx may even predate the pyramids by thousands of years. But, you know, we can do an entire show just on, on the mysteries of the Sphinx. And what people need to understand is Egypt is as ancient a country as it gets. Mm -hmm. So... The pyramids, the accepted date is 2500 B.C. King Tut dies sometime around 1300 B.C. And then Egypt's most popular ruler, Cleopatra, came 1300 years after King Tut. 
And this is still before the birth of Jesus. So then throw another 2,000 years on top of it, and that's how far insulated we are. But in the ancient Egyptian religion, I mean, there was mysticism, there were gods, um, and and they were very close to nature and a respect of of, uh, things like crocodiles, uh, certainly leopards, lions, hippopotamuses, cobras. There was this deep abiding respect and even deification. And certainly the Pharaoh, as God upon earth, owned everyone and everything within Egypt. So when a king was buried, there were the, the, um, the high priests, the entire religion of ancient Egypt, saying, you know, Pharaoh will be laid to rest until he resurrects. And there were uh, beliefs that if you entered the tombs, the gods of ancient Egypt would strike out at you. Ooh. Well, now I know talking about the different aspects and we were talking about um, the Sphinx. I know you said we could do an entire series on, on just that alone, but I know a lot of people are fascinated with the Sphinx. You're saying that it could even predate the great pyramids by thousands of years. They know that the water erosion happened from tropical storms and such, but what do we know about this mystical mythical beast and, and its relevance to their culture? And also, I, when you look at the art from that era, right, the things that were buried in the crypts and underneath these, um, uh, you know, the, the Sphinx itself, the, some of the, the treasures that have been found in and around there, they knew perspective. They knew how to create something, but there's something off about the Sphinx, right? Very yes, little right. head, monstrous lion-like body. What is there any understanding to what was being done there. Had something been altered through time? Uh, My friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Scotch, is a geologist who's been studying the Great Sphinx and conducting sound tests on it for, for years. And the belief is that the Sphinx was originally a lion, now we know that it has the head, um, excuse me, the head of a human and the body of a lion, but it's believed that the original Sphinx was entirely a giant statue of a lion. And like you said, Dave, the Egyptians certainly understood perspective, and they were not mm-hmm. going to undertake something on this scale to make sure that the perspective was off. So the current theory is that originally it was a lion, most likely a female lion, one that did not have a mane. And then during the fourth dynasty, the pyramid age, the um, Pharaoh Khafre, who um, is is reputed to have built the second largest period, Khafre had the head of the lion shaved down to resemble him. So now Hmm. it ties in the very ancient Sphinx with the new and modern pyramids so that it tied all of them together. And then Khafre's successor was Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid, which was even larger than that. And here's here's an idea of how big the Great Pyramid is. It covers 60 acres. Its base covers 60 acres of land. And until the erection of the Eiffel Tower in Paris, In the late 1800s, the Great Pyramid at Giza was the tallest building, the tallest man-made structure on Earth. Interesting. Just, again, I I guess I shouldn't be surprised that something like this would take place, that uh, you would see these heads shaved down. Because a lot of the, quote-unquote, hieroglyphs that have appeared, um, that, that, give ufo like looks to them and uh you know mysterious deals talking to forensic geologist scott walter he has said well that's because there were original hieroglyphs and as other kingdoms and and rulers would come in they would try to wipe them out and type in their own and basically and then through the weather it would it would kind of blend them together exactly and there the pyramids originally were uh, right now they look like um giant staircases all, you know, mm-hmm. heading up to a point. But originally they were covered in very smooth limestone. And we know that because some of the limestone coating is still on a couple of the pyramids, including the Great Pyramid itself. And according to some records, the original pyramids, the 
the uh, upper cap of them was plated in gold, and then they were in these smooth limestone uh, sides with massive hieroglyphs within them. But over the thousands of years, uh, after the fourth dynasty by the Middle Kingdom, which you know was a couple uh, about a thousand years after that, and then certainly by the New Kingdom, uh, which was when Tutankhamun reigned in the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties, subsequent pharaohs used to have the limestone pulled off the pyramids so that they could use it to construct other things. Now, for uh, someone like you and I who study these phenomena, that's like a dagger through the heart thinking, oh, my God, they defaced these monuments. And while they revered them, they also looked at, well, this is a cheap and accessible way to to um, get this very precious limestone. And that the really sad part is, if only those hieroglyphs remained, we would know so much more about the pyramids than we do now. And then, of course, the, um, the obelisks throughout Egypt, and the Washington Monument is an obelisk. So the obelisks throughout Egypt also were believed to have been plated in gold so that they represented the rays of the sun because the Egyptians believed that gold retained the power of the sun and it had a very sacred property to it. And certainly in the time of the Great Pyramids and quite possibly even up until Tutankhamun, gold wasn't viewed so much as money by the Egyptians as it was a sacred metal because it never tarnished. Now, hmm. Egypt's enemies uh, certainly looked at gold quite a bit differently, which is why when they came in and attacked and, and Egypt's fortunes throughout history, like the Dow Jones, they were up there, down, they were up there, down. And when Egypt was strong, they could gold plate their obelisk. When Egypt was invaded, certainly invaders were pulling the, the gold off uh, the pyramids and off of the uh, obelisk mm -hmm. as well. So unfortunately, um, we, we know some things about ancient Egypt. And one of the wonderful things is that the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb changed everything. All right. Well, let's. I want. I want to talk about this really quickly because this is the 100th anniversary of the finding. But it seems like this is bigger than just an anniversary, and it also it, predates the finding of the Rosetta Stone by nearly 100 years as well. Is there a correlation between that? There most certainly is, Dave. The Rosetta Stone was a fascinating find. And when Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1799, he brought with him a whole team of scientists, archaeologists, and scholars. And near the village of Rosetta, Napoleon invaded Egypt. It was occupied by the Turks. His army defeated the Turks, and they discovered the Rosetta Stone, which was written in three different languages. It was written in Demiotic, Hieroglyphs, and Egyptian. And uh, excuse me, in uh, Demiotic, hier uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, and Greek, pardon me. And um, there was a period in Egyptian history where the Greeks ruled Egypt because Alexander the Great conquered them, and the Rosetta Stone dates from that era. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, immediately the scholars were able to read the, the Greek, and they were also able to read the Demiotic. And Demiotic was a later form of Egyptian. It was kind of like their curse of writing. And they found that the messages were identical. So then it reasoned to assume that the hieroglyphs said the same thing. But up until then, nobody could read hieroglyphs. They were just fanciful pictures. It's like when I've been out in the southwest of the Honanaki ruins near Sedona, and there's all these petroglyphs which are carved into the stone, and um, we don't know what it says, but clearly it's a language, and that's how hieroglyphs were looked at. And then Champollion, who was a child prodigy and a linguistics genius, eventually got hold of the Rosetta Stone when it was back in France, and in 1822, so now this is the 200th anniversary of the deciphering of hieroglyphs, so he Using the Demiotic and the Greek, he figured out what the hieroglyphs said, and then all of a sudden, the door of knowledge opened because now scholars could read not only the inscriptions on monuments, but also the vast number of papyri, the, the papyrus scrolls that were discovered for thousands of years in Egypt. All right, so we've got an interesting opening, fascinating overview of the time and era and some of the mysteries surrounding 
Egypt. Let's let's talk about why we're here tonight, right? The discovery, the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. And what can you tell us about this guy, Howard Carter? Howard Carter is one of my favorite uh, characters in history. He was in his late 40s, a confirmed bachelor, um, went to Egypt when he was a teenager and to work with archaeologists. He was a gifted artist and he used to draw hieroglyphs and depictions of tombs for the Egyptologists. He didn't have any university credentials, but he worked his way up through the ranks as a gopher to become one of the most famous archaeologists in the world. He learned how to read hieroglyphs. He understood Egyptian history backwards and forwards. And dozens, if not hundreds of Egyptologists kept um, finding inscriptions of of, uh, the chronology of pharaohs. And so now we're going from the pyramids, which are the fourth dynasty, farther south to what's known as the Valley of the Kings. Mm-hmm. And in what is known as the New Kingdom, there's three distinct phases of ancient Egyptian history. The Old Kingdom, the Pyramid Age, then there was a, um, an era of discord, and then Egypt rose again as a power. They called that the Middle Kingdom, another era of discord, and then Egypt emerged as a superpower and became an empire. And that was the New Kingdom. And Tutankhamun's reign was when Egypt was at the pinnacle of its power. Their empire stretched from the Sudan in the south to mm-hmm. Libya in the west, all the way up to the southern border of Turkey along the Mediterranean coast. So Egypt basically controlled the whole southeastern corner of the Mediterranean and then deep into Africa itself. So the the priests of ancient Egypt and the pharaohs realized that building these gigantic structures like pyramids basically was waving a red flag to tomb robber saying, rip this off, low to a right. treasure, one night's work, become a billionaire. So then they began an elaborate system of underground tombs in what we call the Valley of the Kings. And Howard Carter was a young Egyptologist, and they kept seeing a name. Tutankhamun. And, you know, there was the biggies. There was Amenhotep III. He was the king, you know, the pharaoh's pharaoh, Thutmose III. Uh, He was another one. They called him the Napoleon of Egypt. He's the one that conquered the empire. Ramses the Great, whom we uh, recognize as Yule Brenner from the Ten Commandments, you know, know, all, all these great names, but there was this mysterious Tutankhamun. And archaeologist after archaeologist kept looking for it and came up with nothing. So Howard Carter met a British aristocrat by the name of George Stanhope Molyneux um, Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. And he had a lot of health issues and he used to winter in Egypt. And he was an, he was a amateur archaeologist. He and Carter struck up a lifelong friendship. And he was so intrigued by Carter's obsession. Now, Carter was probably OCD. He'd have to be to, to be someone so who was so relentless. Long story short, Dave, this British aristocrat, he's an earl, goes ahead and funds a, a huge expedition. They employed over a hundred laborers. This was no small feat. This was a big deal. Now, I gotta do a little tangent if I may. Okay. Lord Carnarvon lived in England at High Clare Castle. And I'll bet you, Dave, I'll bet you and most of Paranormal 60s uh, audience would know Highclere Castle in just a second. You know why? Why? Ever seen the the TV show or the movies Downton Abbey? Yeah. It's filmed at Highclere Castle. Very cool. Yeah. Lord Carnarvon, like his Downton Abbey counterparts, British aristocrats living in England. In fact, BBC filmed all the scenes with the aristocrats upstairs in Highclere, but the scenes with the help, which take place in the basement, are filmed at a TV studio outside of London. And the reason for that, it is rumored that the Carnarvon family's private Egyptian collection is actually housed in the basement of Highclere Castle. 
and the eighth Earl of Carnarvon, the great-great-grandson of the Earl of Carnarvon who funded Howard Carter, is still mm-hmm. in residence at Highclere Castle. So, and Lord Carnarvon's daughter, um, Lady Evelyn, is believed to have been the um, the inspiration for Lady Mary in Downton Abbey. Okay, so boy, so you the- are going down a nerd rabbit hole like I've never seen before, Mark <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> well, you know, when I started studying this, I began to sure. see the parallels. Mm-hmm. So then Carter's looking, 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 and we're we're getting close to twenty years going by. Then World War One happens. So there's no excavations between 1914, 1918, and then now we're up to 1922. Lord Carnarvon, like his counterparts in Downton Abbey, are strapped for cash. World War One cleaned out the British aristocracy, and he's ready to pull the plug on the funding. Carter begs him just one more season, and he reluctantly agrees. And this brings us now to November 4th, 1922. All right. I have to stop you real quickly because I do want to set the stage for another aspect of the story. I'm sure everybody's wondering, you know, for those of of us that are maybe not that um, in touch with our Egypt uh, history and Egyptian history, what gives the right to a couple of British guys to start digging in Egypt into these these tunnels and into these pyramids because it's Egyptian, but it was under British reign at that point. Was that correct? It it was yes and no. Um, The British occupied the Suez Canal and some bases along the Mediterranean and Mm -hmm. Egypt had a semi-autonomous status. So there was an Egyptian government, an Egyptian Royal family. And, but, but uh, the concept of Bakshish, and bakshish is an Arabic term for basically a bribe that you pay local officials and they'll let you do these things. And by the time of Howard Carter, people like Carnarvon would be paying for a licensing fee, essentially bakshish, to local authorities. And that certainly has been a lot of tension between uh, the British and the Egyptians. And the Egyptian people in general have felt how their land has been plundered for centuries. So that, that's a really good question, Dave. But but um, Carnarvon was doing everything pretty much by the book. And certainly Howard Carter um, admired his Egyptian uh, laborers and workers. Now, about two weeks before, before the discovery of, uh, of the tomb, Carter had bought this little canary and he kept it at his house, which is near the Valley of the Kings. And he was rude and abrupt and mean to everybody. And his staff was glad that he had this canary that used to sing to him. So on the morning of November 4th, um, uh, Carter leaves his beloved canary, which earned the nickname um, the, the, the um, mascot of the expedition. They called the bird um, the golden bird of the golden tomb. And so Carter arrives at the, the dig site and nothing was happening. And that meant one of two things, Dave. Either somebody had been killed or they found something. Well, they found something. They found a step in the sand. And the workers began to uncover one after the next, after the next 16 steps going down into the earth. And then Carter was hoping against hope, thinking, well, this will probably be another empty tomb because 50 plus other tombs had been discovered with incredible paintings. And maybe they found a piece of jewelry here or there, but no mummies. Um, And they figured, well, maybe this will be yet another empty tomb until they come to a door. And when they uncovered the sand from the door, Carter's heart almost stopped. The two doors to the tomb were sealed with a clay seal that was perfectly intact and Carter read the cartouche the royal logo and it said Tutankhamun and he knew he found a, a sealed tomb at the same moment back at his house a few miles away his staff at home heard a terrible sound and they ran into his living room and a cobra 
had gotten into the cage and was devouring the canary, the mascot of the expedition. The Egyptians were horrified, and they also knew this was a very bad omen because cobras were the symbol of the pharaohs, and they saw this as the spirits of ancient Egypt rising up against the British and against any Egyptian who dared violate the tomb. And let me tell you something, they may have been devout Muslims, but they're still Egyptians. And rumors of this spread through the expedition, the workers like wildfire. All right. That seems like a good moment for us to take a quick break. We're going to talk a little bit more about King Tut, the curse of King Tut, how it affects everything. And is it real? A lot of crazy parts of the story. But hey, folks, how would you like to join me in Egypt this February, the 12th through the 23rd, 12 days and 11 magical nights? We're going to be investigating Egypt, the Great Pyramids, and we'll be visiting Howard Carter's home on the 100th anniversary of the opening of King Tut's tomb. If you want more information, it's simple. Go to Darkness Events. Dot com darknessevents.com that is the best way to get signed up and find out about all the cool trips that we have coming up so go check that out again at darknessevents.com very few slots still remain open be one of those people that join me on the adventure of a lifetime with Schraders of the lost ark Twin Cities Con returns to the Minneapolis Convention Center November 11th through 13th. A three-day celebration of all things nerdy. Meet the Lord of the Rings, Elijah Wood, and Sean Astin, plus dozens of other comic and pop culture celebrities. Enjoy Q&As, gaming tournaments, discussion panels, marketplace costume contests, and more. Tickets start at $25 for a single day, $55 for all three days. Kids 13 and under just $5 for the whole weekend. Visit TwinCitiesCon.com for tickets and info. Don't miss Twin Cities Con November 11th through 13th. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Maybe take a nap? Read a book? Or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com P60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P60. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on, and if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp.com slash P60. There's a link for it on today's program guide. Hey, it's Chris Jericho here just reminding you about the Four Leaf Clover. Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, the fourth voyage, leaving February 2nd from Miami to Great Stirrup Key, our very own private island. This is going to be the biggest and best Jericho cruise ever with the biggest lineup, the most fun. I guarantee it. Come join us for the vacation and the party of a lifetime. ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Cabin's still available. I want to see you there. And I'll be there as well on the Four Leaf Clover, my fourth undisputed championship title match against absolutely nobody else because I am the only paranormal contingent aboard the Four Leaf Clover, but I have it on good authority. 
this year I won't be alone. Joining me, Chachi from the Paranormal 60 News and the Colonel will all be on board. We're going to be having drinks. We're going to be having fun. We're going to be reporting the news from the high seas, and we want you to be a part of it. Get information at chrisjerichocruise.com. That's chrisjerichocruise.com. Come on out and join me this weekend. I'll be out at the Twin Cities Con. It's that uh, great nerd fest. Uh, there are comic book creators, TV, and movie stars that'll be there, and me. I'll be the paranormal contingent. I've got a couple of days of talks on the different aspects of the paranormal. I'll also be hosting and moderating a few panels regarding uh, comic books and artists, and I'll be doing a, uh, a talk on Marvel versus DC movies and tv so make sure you come on out and that's at twincitiescon.com you can get more information about that let's rejoin with our guest here we've got mark anthony and uh, we're talking today about uh the curse of king tut right killer king tut's revenge as i like to call it. sounds very movies from the 80s doesn't it it does it does and i like it this has all the elements so carter uh, his his canary gets swallowed by a cobra. Uh, right. Rumors of a curse are circulating. Meanwhile, he he uh, sends a, a a telegram to England to Highclere Castle, and he has to wait three weeks for Lord Carnarvon and, and Lady Evelyn to arrive. So now it's November twenty sixth, nineteen twenty two. They finally break the seal on the door. And then there's a 30-foot-long hallway filled with debris. Took the workers an entire day, and then they came to another set of doors. And I have to tell this in Carter's own words from his book, The Tomb of Tutankhamun. So here's what happened. They go up to the these doors. Carter drills a hole in the upper left-hand corner, and all of a sudden, hot air comes out. It smells lightly of oil and perfume. He's holding up a candle. In his own words, Carter described what happened next. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by. I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. How very cool. Can you imagine what that find must have been like, Mark? To be on the trail of this for so long, to have wars come and go, to have all of this and then build up to this moment that you, you don't get to just swing open the doors and see. You've got to look in through this little hole with a flashlight in order to see what's going on. A candle, nonetheless. Uh, right, candle. A candle, and 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 um, they saw furniture piled up on each other, a throne, um, games, linens, all sorts of containers, things nobody had ever seen for thirty-three centuries, and eventually. They, you know, Mark. They, if people are excited by that, they could just peek in my garage window at any time. <laughs> just. <laughs> Well, you know, ceiling. <laughs> we're basing we're basing our understanding of an entire uh, civilization on a couple of rooms first uh, full of furniture. Right. You know, <laughs> you think about it. And and the thing is, there was uh, like five different chambers in the tomb, but it took ten years to get everything out. Carter wow. brought forth the best team. He had experts from uh, the photographer came from the Metropolitan Museum in, in New York. He had experts from the British Museum, from the Louvre, from the Vatican Museum, even the Germans uh, they brought in. And I don't mean to say even the Germans, but even though they'd fought um, the, the war, the, the scientists still respected each other. And they meticulously documented, labeled, numbered everything. Some things were perfectly intact. And then others, they opened up one chest and it was full of clothing, and the mere touch of it, it disintegrated into dust. I can't wow. even imagine how that must have felt. We've all seen the treasures, but the coffin, they, they found a huge uh, pink um, uh, sarcophagus, and, and uh, it, it, when they took the cover off of it, there were three coffins inside, but the innermost coffin 
was solid gold, a wow. 250 pounds of gold. And then when they opened that, they were flabbergasted at the, the golden death mask on the mummy, which is one of the most recognizable symbols of ancient Egypt. Right. Um, this, this went beyond Carter's wildest dreams. And it should be noted after your story of the cobra getting in and killing his prized canary that right on the headdress of King Tut is a cobra. Is a cobra and a vulture. And right. the cobra was the protector of the Egyptian pharaohs because the pharaoh was supposed to be able to spit poison and strike down his enemies, or rather strike down his enemies the way a cobra does. Well, this, Dave, very rapidly became the biggest news story in the world. Reporters from every newspaper from London to Tokyo flooded the Valley of the Kings. Howard Carter hated every minute of that, despised them, couldn't stand that they took the new name Tutankhamun and turned it into King Tut. Meanwhile, Lord Carnarvon was an attention sponge, and he liked the media attention and basically said, Carter, you handle the excavation. I will handle the media. Well, that would have worked really well, but he made a big mistake, Dave, and you know what that was? What was that? He sold the exclusive rights of the story to the London Times, and with the stroke of a pen on a check, cut out every single reporter in the world. And they weren't happy about that. <laughs> so, one unscrupulous reporter, or maybe several, they'd been talking to the workers and they heard about the cobra devouring the canary. So, a reporter made up a story that within the tomb, a clay tablet was found that said death will slay with his wings whoever disturbs the peace of the pharaoh well, now <laughs> oh perfect perfect well it, you know at first blush we're thinking okay this is just a spiteful sort of thing but then a few months later it's april 1923 lord carnarvon is in a hotel in cairo he'd had a mosquito bite on his cheek and he cut it when he was shaving. It got infected, and he dropped dead. And when he died, Dave, at the precise moment that Lord Carnarvon drew his last breath, it was reported that all the lights in Cairo, which then, like now, was the largest city in Africa, flickered and went out for a moment. Okay, the reporters were totally loving this. But then... <laughs> But then other things started happening because anyone who entered the tomb, it seemed like, was afflicted by the curse. By 1929, according to Time magazine, 22 people who'd been involved with the excavation or who had entered the tomb died under mysterious circumstances. And American tycoon George J. Gould British industrialist Joel Wolfe and British aristocrats Mervyn Herbert and Richard Bethel all died shortly after entering the tomb. And Bethel's father, Lord Westbury, was so horrified, he left a, a suicide note that said, I can't take any more of these horrors. And he leaped from a building to his death. During his funeral, the funeral carriage ran over and killed an eight-year-old boy. People were dying. Rumors of the curse were flying. And Dave, the media, was having a field day because now they had the rumor of a curse. And, and it led to what the reporters were saying was actual evidence that whoever entered this tomb was cursed and would be struck down by the gods of ancient Egypt. I love this little bit of, of information that came out as well. Uh, a cobra that killed Howard Carter's pet canary. You talked about that after the discovery. Uh, you've got Lord, Lord uh, Carnivon, the person who funded the dig, dying from that strange infection. Then you got the fact that his dog howled and dropped dead at two in the morning, the right. same night that Carnivon died. And uh, it, it is strange, though, because you'd think 
out of all of this, Howard Carter, he lived a decade past this finding. But in a way, you've got to think that is kind of a curse because do you feel the guilt of being the one to bring the people to this and see over 29 people die and you are witness to each one of these deaths that are ascribed to the opening of Tut's tomb? Well, did the curse, <laughs> effect, did the curse affect Howard Carter? It might have, yet in a okay. different way. See, you would think that you know the, the evil spirits would really been out to get Carter. And a lot of uh, people chimed in on what what was killing killing any everyone. Um, some some of the conspiracy theorists said that the Egyptians coated everything with long lasting poisons, microbes, uh, even radioactive uranium. And uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and we've talked about him a lot over over mm. several. He chimed in and said that the priests of ancient Egypt conjured elementals, non-human spirits, uh, to protect the tomb. And so when interviewed about the curse, what Carter said was, Tommy Rot, the sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect and awe, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions. But... On the flip side of the karmic coin, Dave, mm -hmm. Carter abhorred being in the spotlight, and he was now the most famous archaeologist in the world. He was hounded by reporters day and night. He died in 1939, and even though he was given great um, uh, speaking opportunities, he was snubbed by British academia for not having university credentials. So the very people that that should have been looking up to him or looking down on him. Also, he was prone to severe bouts of depression. Now, when you start looking at him, and I'm not a psychologist, um, my co-host on The Psychic and the Doc is, and we were talking about Howard Carter, he may have been um, obsessive-compulsive disorder. He may also have been bipolar. Because, look, you discover something like Tutankhamun's tomb, that that's a one in a billion plus chance. You're the most famous celebrated archaeologist in the world, yet he suffered from horrible depression. So rather than dropping dead, maybe the curse did affect him. It let him live in a sense of psychological torture up until the day he died. Hmm. Exactly. Terrifying stuff. No, I know our, our time is slipping. We have about 10 minutes left together tonight, but I want to talk about um, the things that were found inside his tomb. Obviously there was a lot of furniture. We talked about the cartouche. Right. We talked about his death mask, all of the things. What, what do you think was um, the most disturbing find inside King Tut's tomb? There were two mummified fetuses, which were located within the tomb. And this really surprised everybody. Um, recent DNA analysis indicates that they were Tutankhamun's daughters. They appear to be uh, two female fetuses. They appear to have been twins. And the other thing that really mystified people was the condition of Tutankhamun's mummy. The heart was missing. And this was highly, highly unusual. The Egyptians considered the heart the most important organ in the body. They considered it more important than the brain. They used to discard the brain while mummifying, but they would take the heart out and preserve it and wrap it and then replace it into the body. But also, Tutankhamun's body was badly mangled and damaged. Recent DNA analysis indicates that he suffered from malaria sickle cell anemia, and Kohler's disease, which is a vascular bone necrosis causing poor blood supply into the bones. It also, um, it was also discovered he had a, a club foot. So what we have is a severely disabled young man. He was about nine years old when he came to the throne, about anywhere from 18 to 20 when he died. Also within the tomb were 120 walking sticks so from the time he could walk, this young man was using a cane, and they could tell that he used them because the walking sticks 
had you know dings and dents on them. They they were definitely used. These are just a few of the very anomalous things. If we had more time, and maybe you know, um, maybe in our our next episode we could talk about why it was believed that Tutankhamun was murdered, because there were certainly a lot of motivations to wipe out his entire dynasty. Tutankhamun's family was not popular with the military, nor were they popular with the high priests of Egypt. And think about it. You know, in in our modern day and age, we understand that people have disabilities and people are, are, are given opportunities and treated with dignity and respect. We're talking ancient Egypt. Pharaoh is supposed to be a warrior, a manly man who leads troops into battle. And here you have um, a boy who was the byproduct of generations of inbreeding because only a god could mate with a god. And Tutankhamun's bride and widow was his half-sister, Anka Sanamit. So his parents most likely were related. His grandparents were um, genetically related. So he had all of these physical disabilities. Yeah, I, and- I thought I'd read that, that Tutankhamun's father and mother were brother and sister. Uh, very, very possibly, very possible. Hmm. And so you have this extremely disabled young man who was not living up to the warrior king ideal. And this is not something that the Egyptian military would have appreciated. So how did he die? Why was his heart missing? Also, it looks like one of his legs was broken and there was a um, signs of infection. Did he fall from a chariot? There, There's depictions in the tomb that he seemed to like riding chariots. That would make sense. Was it an accident? I mean, accidents do happen, don't they? Well, they also, didn't they find a hole? And at first they thought maybe it had been struck in the head, but later they just realized that that was part of the mummification process that for removing the brain. That is correct. There were some bone fragments, but there was this small device. It looked like a hook, and they shove it up through the uh, sinuses uh, to break the cartilage there and then grab hold of the brain and, and section it up and yank it out through the nose. I mean, mummification is a fairly disgusting practice, <laughs> um, but, but thanks to mummification, so many bodies of these ancient rulers and ancient aristocrats were preserved. So now we're able to run DNA tests on them to see who was related to who. Also, we're picking up on all these diseases. I mean, think about it. Um, Malaria, uh, typhoid, yellow fever, uh, not to mention Ebola. I mean, this was a time when antibiotics didn't exist and people were certainly uh, subject to, to the brutality of the elements. Listen, I don't want to be a doomsayer, but they're uncovering more and more in Egypt all the time. Yeah. And they're digging and they've just found more ruins and more cities. Yeah. Are we in danger? I mean, Africa is already kind of a hotbed of disease that, you know, Ebola and AIDS and many other things have, have originated from. As right. we're cracking open these shells, are we at risk of reinfecting people with ancient viruses and disease, which they they're able to bond and bind with the wheat and with many of the different things that were left, the grains. And then when people are disturbing them, uh, they believe that's what caused a lot of the illness to the 29 plus people that died of lung diseases and, and cancers and very strange things that were associated with King Tut's tomb. Do you think that if this continues and we continue to open these places up, we're going to see more nastiness come out? Well, that certainly has been one of the theories that people said that the Egyptians coated things with microbes, um, long lasting poisons and, and, you know, people handling them. This was also Egypt in the 1920s and antibiotics were not readily available for until right before World War II, which started in 1939. And, you know, People dropping dead of typhoid, yellow fever, malaria in Egypt is not so unusual, but they were in the tomb and then within days afterwards dying. It's also possible that the air within the tomb, there could have been microbes. Were they naturally occurring or were they placed there? And you bring up a very fascinating point, Dave, 
because you know we have immunities to to certain like colds and and things like that, but these could be diseases which humans haven't encountered for thousands of years and no longer have the immunities. I mean, when Europeans, when the Spanish invaded Central America, within 10 years of the Spanish landing in Central America in the early 1500s, 90% of the Native American population died from European diseases. And we're talking the flu, the common cold, and of course, smallpox. 90%. Wow, nine out of every 10 people died. So if we're unearthing these tombs, and what if the ancient priests put things in there, or even if some of these bodies or the organic material could have been infected, if it could survive that long, it is theoretically possible that this could get out and cause you know, other problems. I, I prefer to keep an open mind about these things, and that's why when approaching these ancient tombs, everything must be addressed. Um, I think they need to wear uh, rubber gloves, I mean, certainly to protect the artifacts, also face masks to protect themselves until things are properly scanned, identified, and analyzed. We have to uh, apply the scientific method to to the excavation of these tombs. Obviously, right. Right, for the protection of the site, the artifacts, but also for the excavator, him and herself. All right, we've only got a few minutes left here. That leaves me with the question then. We've talked on the show in the past about thought forms, about intention and manifestation. Millions of people around the world believe in curses, believe in the Pharaoh's curses. Does that embolden or empower locations with maybe something that was awakened or brought about that didn't actually exist until so many people were focused on it? Does that make sense? I mean, I'm just curious how, how that energetic exchange and transfer works. Well, that, that's certainly an interesting thought because, I mean, look at it. Electricity, electromagnetic energy has positive and negative charges. And, and you know, people ask me, you know, do curses exist? Well, I think if you um, emotionalize, personalize it, and accept it, you can uh, cause something negative to happen to yourself. But I also remember when I was in close proximity to the Hope Diamond. And the Hope Diamond has a very sordid history going back all the way to Louis XIV. And, and whoever possessed it met a horrible fate. It doesn't seem to be striking out at people now, I guess, because no one person owns it being on display at the Smithsonian. But I'll tell you, when I was looking at it, Dave, and being a psychic medium, I'm very sensitive to frequency. I got the this cold chill running through me and I'm like, OK, that's it. <laughs> I'll look at it from across the room. And if there's anybody I know that knows about frequencies... It's Mark Anthony. His new book, The Afterlife Frequency, The Scientific Proof of Spiritual Contact and How That Awareness Will Change Your Life. The book is out and available now. We've got a link for that on tonight's program guide. Give everybody a quick little uh, description of the psychic and the doc so people know what they're going to be tuning in for when they find your show, Mark. Yeah, the psychic and the doc, my co-host, is the amazing Dr. Pat Basili. She's a world-renowned behavioral psychologist. Uh, we have a lot of fascinating guests on the show, but most of the time we take calls from listeners. And I'll do many readings uh, for the callers in tandem with Dr. Pat's intuitive, uplifting insights. And she is hilarious, um, but we're here to help people. And that's the psychic and the doc. It's every Thursday, 4 p.m., Eastern, uh, excuse me, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And to find out about it, go to my website, afterlifefrequency.com, just like my book, The Afterlife Frequency, and you can get the link to, to listen and to watch the show. Sounds good. We will again have all of those links on tonight's program guide. I, I sit here behind my microphone alone in a darkened room. And I can sense a great disturbance in the force. People aren't done with the stories of Egypt and its mysteries. And neither is Mark Anthony. So make sure that you tune in tomorrow when we have a special episode. We will be back. And tomorrow we'll be discussing 
screaming mummies and other mysteries that's right here on the best in paranormal talk radio i am your host dave schrader and this is the paranormal 60. <laughs> 